0: Hey, Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Back in the 1950s, women who worked were often left with occupations that involved their body and looks. They were put in dangerous situations, sometimes by those closest to them without a second thought. Modeling was one of those jobs many considered easy money at the time and didn't hesitate to accept it. I want to tell you a story about four women who put their trust into a man who took advantage of them. For them, a picture really is worth a thousand words. In January of 1957, Harvey Glattman, a 30 year old aspiring photographer whose day job was being a TV repairman, had recently moved to Los Angeles, California. With the money he was making, he was able to rent a studio apartment in the heart of LA on Melrose Avenue. There, he would set up his first darkroom, and purchased a roller cord camera with accessories to start his photography career. He started offering his services once everything was set up, under the name Johnny Glenn, and used this name to seek out work at modeling agencies. He wasn't just looking for models to offer his skills to, though. Harvey was looking for victims. 19-year-old Judith Dole would be his first victim in LA. She was a single mother of one and currently in an ongoing custody battle over her daughter. She was using the money she was making from modeling to pay for her court fees and was willing to take as many jobs as she could get. On August 1st of 1957, she received a call from Harvey, who introduced himself as Johnny. He told her he was given her number from a modeling agency and he had an exciting job for her that would pay $50. $50 may not seem like much now, but in the fifties, that's equivalent to $450 today. He instructed her to wear street clothes, and even offered to shoot her at her own apartment if that made her more comfortable. Since Judy shared an apartment with two other models, this seemed like a safe enough idea, and it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Later that evening, Harvey arrived at Judy's apartment, but as soon as he entered, he began complaining stating that the lighting wasn't right for the session he had in mind and tried to convince her to go to his studio instead. At first, Judy hesitated, but Harvey was a scrawny and awkward man and Judy didn't really view him as a threat, so she agreed to relocate to his place. Before leaving, he gave his phone number to her roommate Betty in case they needed to contact Judy. Then he and Judy hopped into his car and headed off. Once they arrived at his studio, Harvey explained to her that the session involved bondage and that she needed to be tied up. Judy agreed to be tied up and positioned herself in a way that would make it easy for him to do so. He told her to appear afraid and began waving his new handgun around as inspiration throughout the photo shoot. Before long, Harvey escalated to raping her. He assaulted her several times that night, but he wasn't done with her yet. Afterwards, he made her sit down next to him on the couch and cuddle while watching TV.
1: Ew, that's so weird. This guy's a creep.
0: Nothing should involve bondage unless it's specifically what you signed up for.
1: Yeah. Did he let her go after that?
0: Well, hours later, around 10.30 p.m., Harvey told a devastated Judy he was ready to release her, but he wasn't going to take her home. He planned on driving her to the middle of nowhere and leaving her there. He tied her up again, this time by her wrist, and led her back to his car at gunpoint. He headed a hundred miles south towards Thousand Palms, California. When they arrived, he tied a lasso around her neck, pushed her onto her knees, and hogtied her. He then pulled the rope until Judy couldn't breathe. He held the rope tight until the struggling stopped and her body went limp. He untied her and took the ropes home with him after burying Judy in a shallow grave. As time went on, Judy's roommates grew concerned, and as experienced models knew this was not the normal length of a photo shoot. Betty decided to call the number Johnny had given her, but quickly realized she was given a fake number. Her roommates immediately called the police and gave them a description of the man and his car. Even with his description released to the public, no witnesses came forward. Four months later, Judy's body was discovered, 128 miles east of L.A. in Indio, California, a ways off the highway. She was found buried in a shallow grave, which had been dug up by animals. She had signs of having been tied up with ropes, but none were left behind at the scene. No one identified her as Judy, though, and she would go on to be known as Jane Doe for months to
1: come. Oh, man, that's awful. Her roommates thought they had taken precautions to keep her safe. But when she didn't come home, they didn't really know where she was or who she was with.
0: And back then, they didn't even have cell phones, so calling to confirm before he left with her wasn't even an option.
1: Right. Did they take more women like this?
0: Oh yeah, three months later in March of 1958, his next victim would be found in an ad you may recognize from our Valentine's Day bonus episode, The Lonely Hearts Club. It's an ad placed in the newspaper for singles about themselves looking for love. If you like what you read about someone, you can reach out to them directly and boom, you have a match. It's modern day Tinder, but much more time consuming. Three months later, in March of 1958, his next victim would be found in an ad you may recognize from our Valentine's Day bonus episode. The Lonely Hearts Club. It's an ad placed in the newspaper for singles about themselves looking for love. If you like what you read about someone, you can reach out to them directly, and boom, you have a match. It's like modern-day Tinder, but much more time-consuming. 24-year-old Shirley Bridgeford was a divorced mother with two children living in the Sun Valley neighborhood of L.A. when she received a letter from a man named George Williams, who offered to take her on a date. Once he arrived at her home on March 8th, he was thrown off to see how many people Shirley lived with. As a single mother, she often needed help caring for her sons while she was trying to find modeling work. As a result, Shirley and her extended family shared a house and all helped each other out. Not wanting these people to get a good look at him, he quickly got her into the car to go dancing. Once they were driving, Harvey told Shirley he was suffering from a headache and took her to a quiet dinner on the ocean side instead. After dinner, they parked for a while, kissing and messing around with each other. It started getting late, and Harvey told her that he would take her home, but instead, he began driving in the opposite direction towards anza Borrego Desert State Park. Confused and concerned when he stopped the car in the middle of nowhere, Shirley insisted he take her home immediately. Instead, he pulled out a gun, pointed it at Shirley, and told her to undress. He proceeded to rape Shirley all night long, and once he was finished, he forced her to get out of the car where he tied her up and took pictures of her. He eventually strangled her to death like he had done with Judy, but instead of burying her right away, he started to position her body in more ways, taking further pictures of her now lifeless body. Once he got what he wanted, he left her body exposed on the desert floor for the animals to take care of.
1: Jeez. It sounds like she might have actually liked him based on the consensual kissing that was happening after dinner. She had no idea that she was on a date with a monster.
0: I mean, the date sounded amazing, and then suddenly everything went left.
1: Right? What the heck?
0: It would be four months later in July of 1958 before Harvey found his next victim, Ruth McCardo. Ruth had recently placed an ad in the local paper looking for model work. When Harvey came across it, he didn't hesitate to take advantage of her need for work and contacted her to make an appointment at her apartment. Ruth's current occupation was working as a pinup girl and dancer, using her stage name Angela Rojas. She was actually from New York, but recently relocated to Los Angeles area, hoping to make it big time there. She aspired to be the next Marilyn Monroe. That day, Harvey came to her apartment, but Ruth took notice that his camera was missing. He said he left it in the car, but just as Ruth was in the middle of asking him to grab it, she felt a pistol pressed into her abdomen. He forced her into the bedroom where she was subjected to the same torture and rape as his previous victims. After he was done, he told her they were going on a picnic and promised that afterwards he would release her. She prayed he would honor his word and let her go if she did exactly what he said, so they walked out of the door together, but he had no intention of letting her go. He took her to the same area where he had killed Shirley and strangled her with the same rope used on his other victims before leaving her remains to rot. On July 27th, four days after Harvey abducted her, Ruth's landlord grew worried. It wasn't like Ruth to be gone this long, so he went to go check on her. As soon as he entered her apartment, he knew something was terribly wrong. He found her pet birds and dogs on the verge of death due to malnourishment. If she knew she was going to be away from home this long, she would have arranged for someone to take care of her animals. He called the police to start a missing persons report on his tenant and told them she went off with a photographer for a photo
1: shoot and never returned. That's a good landlord to notice and care that she hadn't been home in a few days. Again, this guy is such a weirdo. One woman he makes watch TV with him and Ruth he takes on a picnic all after brutally raping them. It's adding insult to injury.
0: And as her landlord, it's likely he knew her routine, so he knew something wasn't right. And I know, he makes it sound like the women actually have a chance, only to be like,
1: psych, in the end. (laughs) It's not enough to physically torture and murder these women. He has to mess with their heads, too. Please tell me he didn't just continue racking up his body count.
0: His final victim would come into play in October of 1958. 28-year-old Lorraine Vigil was new to modeling and was on the hunt for her first paid modeling gig. To her surprise, her agency contacted her out of the blue and told her a man known to them as Frank Johnson would pick her up from her apartment that night at 8 p.m. They also informed her that Frank was an amateur photographer rather than a professional one and warned her to be careful. Back then, most of the modeling agencies treated women like objects than people. They wanted the thinnest, most unrealistically perfect looking women at any cost. Some abused their power by misusing images of women stripping down to nothing for their own sick entertainment. Nevertheless, Lorraine was eager to start her portfolio and was eager to take any job she could get. Once in Harvey's car, Lorraine asked them where they were shooting tonight, but he didn't give her a clear answer. As they drove further and passed the Anaheim exit, she became weary and started asking even more questions regarding their destination. Harvey began to act erratic and suddenly drove off the road, claiming he had a flat tire. Once they came to a complete stop, he tried tying Lorraine up and threatened her with his gun, as he had with the others. However, Lorraine wasn't going down without a fight and reached for the other end of the gun. They fought for control and the gun went off, grazing her leg. Shocked Harvey let the gun go Lorraine saw this as her only chance to run and took it she opened the door took the gun and made her escape two police officers had noticed Harvey's out of control driving before the altercation and on a hunch had followed his vehicle they kept their distance in order not to spook him but when they caught up to where he had parked they noticed Lorraine running for her life she ran directly to the police while Harvey stayed in the car realizing
1: that this would be the end of his murder spree. Go Lorraine! She wasn't having it. I also love how the cops were just accidentally in the right place at the right time with no idea what was going on. Right, she got lucky. And how I see
0: it is if someone has a gun pointed at you and they want to kill you, they'll do it. If they hesitate, take that as your opportunity to not go down without a fight.
1: Absolutely. Don't
0: make it easy for them. Staff will tell us more about Harvey in this case when we come back.
1: Harvey Glattman was born on December 10th of 1927 to Ophelia and Albert Glattman in the Bronx, New York. His father was a Milner, which is a person who sells women's hats, and his mom stayed home and took care of the household and doted on her son. At a very young age, Harvey started showing signs of some disturbing social disorders he wasn't social with other kids, and he had no interest in participating in activities other kids his age typically loved. As he got older, Harvey developed violent tendencies and had terrible mood swings. He would laugh randomly even during tragic moments. He had little to no attention span, and that made it hard for him to be successful in school. Eventually, his mother made the decision to keep him home and teach him herself. His father was known as a strict man, so when it came to dealing with his son's behavior, he tended to resort to severe punishment that only added to his son's already fragile psyche. Around the age of 10, his mother allowed him to go back to public school, but things would only get worse for him there. He was relentlessly bullied by his peers. They would constantly point out Harvey's buck teeth and extremely thin build. He fell into depression and continued to develop low self-esteem, making him increasingly more nervous when it came to speaking to girls. He often developed a stutter when he got up the courage to approach a girl, which only led to more ridicule. When Harvey was about 12 years old, his parents caught him indulging in autoerotic asphyxia, which is when a person ties a rope around their neck and chokes themselves for sexual pleasure. At this point, his family packed up and moved to Colorado. His mother was hoping a change in environment would be refreshing for him and guide him away from these disturbing behaviors. However, Harvey didn't change at all, and his interest in rope and sexual strangulation only got worse. At her wit's end, his mother took him to see a family psychologist, who told her not to worry about it. He would grow out of it.
0: Autoerotic asphyxia? Now, most of us have heard of BDSM play within the bedroom, but this is like playing Russian roulette.
1: Yeah, it's extreme, and for a 12-year-old kid to be doing it is crazy. She had a good reason to be concerned. So did he ever improve as he got older? Once Harvey started high school, he actively began his criminal career. He started by breaking into homes and stealing from them. One of the items taken from these break-ins was a handgun that he would keep on him at all times from that point forward. He then started stalking women by following them on the streets, pinpointing the location of their homes, then returning to rob them that night or soon after. Once inside the homes of these women, he would tie them up with ropes and threaten them with his stolen gun to stay quiet and follow his orders. He would demand they lay down on their bed with him while he touched their bodies, masturbated, and took photos of them. His reasoning was he wished to have the experience of what it was like to be with a woman. Before long, his mother noticed that he was staying out all night and started asking questions. Harvey's excuse was that he had extracurricular activities to do at school, and she happily accepted this. After all, Maybe it was a sign that Harvey was growing out of his antisocial ways. But his actions were growing even more sadistic with each attack and were far from improving.
0: I would ask how that's satisfying for him to get off, but it all comes down to control.
1: Control, lack of confidence and self-esteem, a whole list of reasons why he gets off on this behavior. Can you believe his mom just bought that excuse? Who's at school all night long?
0: Well, I've personally never heard of any sports clubs running that late, but maybe it was like a thing in the 50s. How long did this go on for?
1: Well, in May of 1945, Harvey got caught breaking into a woman named Elma Hamas' home. Police were called, and they found the stolen gun and some rope in his pockets. He was taken to the police station for questioning, where he ended up telling police all about his previous break-ins, but left out the sexual assault. This brush with the law didn't give him pause at all, though. While on bail, waiting for the trial of the burglaries he confessed to, he abducted a woman named Noreen Laurel. He kidnapped Noreen and took her to Sunshine Canyon. There he groped her while stroking himself and then took her home after he was done with her. Following the assault, Noreen went straight to the police station and reported the incident. Later, she would identify Harvey through a book of mugshots at 17 years old harvey was sentenced to one year in the colorado state prison for his crimes but he was released after only eight months for good behavior his parents wanted to get him out of colorado because he had established a reputation he could no longer escape there his mother found him an apartment in new york and secured him a job at a local tv repair shop over the next few years of his unsupervised young adult life Harvey continued committing various crimes, such as theft and sexual assault, and spent most of the next decade in and out of prison. See, this is
0: where the three strike rules should come into place. If he keeps committing the same
1: crimes, keep his ass in jail. It gets complicated when they're a kid doing these things, though. No one wants to lock up a kid and throw away the key. People always hope they can turn their life around, and some do, but Harvey had no interest in changing. So
0: now he's unsupervised, though. So he must have been really out of control.
1: Yeah. So Harvey's first attack in New York was on August 17th of 1946. Thomas Starrow and Doris Thorne were taking a leisurely walk when they were attacked by Harvey. He tied both victims up with rope before proceeding to rape Doris. He told her not to make a move or he would shoot her with a gun that was actually nothing more than a toy. During the rape, Thomas was able to free himself from the rope and attack Harvey while he was distracted with Doris. Harvey broke free from Thomas's grip and cut him with a knife before running away and hopping on a random train. Harvey ended up two hours north in Albany, New York and decided it was fate. Five days later, on August 22nd, Harvey attacked Florence Hayden, a nurse who had been walking down Main Avenue in Albany. Harvey pushed her into a yard and threatened her with his toy gun. He went to tie her up like he had done with the previous victims, and she noticed he wasn't holding his gun anymore. She took advantage of the opportunity to scream and push him off of her. She immediately told police and even claimed that her attacker seemed more frightened than she was. That attack had been a complete failure for him, and Harvey still had urges to fulfill. So he stuck around Albany and that evening he approached two women walking together down the street. However, as he got closer to them, his confidence waned and he decided to demand money from them instead, using his toy gun as a threat. The women easily handed over their purses, so Harvey took them and ran.
0: The nurse didn't even want to risk being tied up. To remain that focused and calm enough to see everything happening around you during a traumatizing experience is a skill.
1: Oh yeah, I'm sure she has practiced with her profession of staying cool under pressure. It's so funny that she noticed he was more afraid than she was. She really messed with his self-confidence.
0: Right. I'm also glad to see those other women weren't harmed. Him attacking two women at once is new. You would think he would have learned his lesson with Thomas and Doris.
1: You would think. So the women reported the robbery to police, and they were able to tie it together with the last two attacks on Doris, Thomas, and Florence, based on the very similar descriptions they had all given of the man. On August 24th, while in the middle of stalking his next victim, Harvey was arrested and found with a toy gun, rope, and a pocket knife on his person. He was charged and sentenced to 5 to 10 years in prison at 19 years old and was sent to Elmira Correctional Facility. He would eventually spend time in Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York as well. It was at Sing Sing, Harvey would undergo psychiatric evaluations where his results would be not definitively mentally defective or psychotic, but also couldn't be ruled out. After only two years, he was released on parole yet again for good behavior. His parole conditions consisted of four years under his mother's care, where she would keep him under close observation, and he was supposed to continue seeing a therapist in Colorado, but there's no evidence to suggest that he did. Once he was released from his parole obligations, he moved to LA and only occasionally went back to Colorado to visit his mother. In LA, he made a fresh start by opening his own TV repair shop and moonlighting as a photographer on the side in order to lure victims into a false sense of security. As Sham detailed, he was far more successful victimizing women in L.A. than he had previously been. But in the end, he still got caught. He spent his entire life
0: figuring out ways to victimize women and lure them. So sick.
1: It's like he was carefully practicing to learn what worked and what didn't.
0: Okay, so his past proves he's one sick individual. What happened after he was finally busted in L.A.?
1: Well, after his final victim, Lorraine, Harvey was taken to Orange County Jail, where he was questioned by a team of investigators. It didn't take long for him to confess to the killings of Ruth and Shirley. After his confession, police went to his apartment to gather evidence. They uncovered the toolbox he had mentioned in his statement to them earlier. This toolbox was filled to the brim with images he had taken of all of the rapes and murders he committed over his lifetime. They had all been processed carefully by Harvey in his homemade darkroom. Harvey also held on to some of the victims' clothing, which police found in his studio as well. The investigators knew they needed to give the families of these victims some closure. So instead of sending Harvey directly to jail, they had him lead them to the victim's remains. Their first trip was to Anza State Park, where Harvey led them to the location of Shirley's remains without any hesitation. It didn't take long to find her because Harvey hadn't bothered to bury her, thinking the animals would get rid of her for him. Though the animals did cause significant damage, spreading her remains throughout the area, they found enough of her body to identify her. From there, he directed them down the road to find Ruth's remains. There was still hair on her skull, and her body was well intact for the most part. When Harvey took them to the location of Judy's body, she wasn't there, because she had already been discovered back in December of 1957 and marked as a Jane Doe. Harvey had confessed to the murder of Shirley and Ruth, but not Judy, and without her body or a confession, they couldn't charge him with her murder. They still had a strong case against him for the other murders and the assault on Lorraine, so it was decided there was no need to stand trial. You would
0: think that taking investigators to where Judy's remains were originally left would be enough, but some laws are weird and there's so many loopholes.
1: Yeah, I see that as a confession. They at least should have looked into if any bodies had previously been found there. What was his sentencing? On December 15th, 1958, Harvey pleaded guilty by reason of insanity and requested the death penalty. The judge was surprised by the unusual request, but granted it, and Harvey Glatman was sentenced to death. Harvey was transferred to the San Quentin prison and executed on September 18th of 1959 by gas chamber at the age of 31 years old. Judith Dole, Ruth McArdo,
0: Shirley Ann Bridgeford, and Lorraine Vigil all accepted a job or date that promised to return them safely to their homes after. Instead, they were tied up, violated, and almost were all murdered by a man who felt like the only way he could get a woman was to take full control over her. Is there more the system could have done to protect women from Harvey Glattman? Was his untreated mental illness to blame? Regardless, it's important to look out for your loved ones, always travel in pairs of two or more for photography sessions, and always set your location while on dates with strangers. You never know if the person in front of you is really who they appear to be.
1: Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page or you can download the P3 Tips app.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Nalina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week.
1: Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week?
0: Today I want to talk about a protection and grounding spell to leave out your entryway of your home. You'll start by collecting a bowl of your choice and cleansing it by hovering the inside of the bowl over a candle flame. Another way of cleansing it is to smudge your bowl with an incense stick or sage. The first ingredient to go in your bowl is coarse sea salt or Himalayan salt for protection. You'll then put in some protection and grounding stones of your choice like jasper or black tourmaline, add in some fresh or dried rosemary for cleansing and purification. Add in some fresh cedar that will drive away any negative influences or evil spirits. With all those ingredients added, your salt bowl can now be placed at your entryway. After a stressful day, you can come home and put your fingers into
1: the bowl to ground yourself. I love that. I am totally going to have to set one of those up at my house. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.